Can we pray uh, one more time before we get to this passage? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our desire this morning, we want it to be our desire, is that you would be magnified as we sang. We want all of our attention, all of our focus, all of our affection to be aimed at you through the preaching of your word, through our interaction with the text of scripture this morning. We want you to be exalted. We want you to be lifted up in our hearts. We want you to be seen as beautiful and wonderful and glorious because you are. That's our prayer this morning. That's our desire. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that work in us as we sit together for the next few minutes under your word. Thank you for what you're going to do. May we walk out of this building this morning changed people because of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a a book. I have a lot of books on my shelves, but I have a book in particular that is uh, 650 pages long and is made up of nearly 50 sermons, all of them preached by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British pastor in the mid-20th century, and all of the sermons, all 650 pages, all, I think it's 48 sermons, are on this chapter, John chapter 17, the whole thing. Some of you are like, well, why couldn't you do that? And others of you are like, thank you for not doing that. (laughs) Guess what the title of the book is? It's called The Assurance of Salvation. It's a fascinating title, I think, because when you come to this passage, you don't see the word assurance anywhere. And this passage certainly doesn't give us a formal explanation uh, of, the, of the teaching regarding assurance of salvation. There's no instruction really directly on how to have assurance. And so it's kind of an interesting chapter, an interesting title for a book like that. It kind of makes you stop and think about why you would call this chapter, Recording a Prayer of Jesus, The Assurance of Salvation. What we do find in this chapter that leads us to think about assurance of salvation is we find unparalleled insight into the heart of our Lord. You want to get into Jesus' heart and understand who he is and what drives him, you go to John chapter 17. In this prayer, we find that he actually, this really happened in time and space. The Lord of the universe prayed a prayer for you and for me. He prayed for us in this prayer. He asked God to preserve us, to keep us. He prayed for his death to glorify God, to bring glory both to the Father and to the Son because that is so significant and so important for him. And he expressed quite clearly that he wants us to begin more and more to understand the love that God has for us. His desire in this prayer is for us to be drawn further into communion with him. That's what he wants as you read and understand this prayer. And in this prayer, he gives us the ultimate goal of our salvation, to know the Father and to know the Son in a personal and close relationship for all of eternity. And when you start to understand what he's doing in this prayer, setting out his his values 
it begins to build assurance of salvation in you because you see what Christ values and you understand that he prayed for you and his prayer will be answered and the Father will keep us and preserve us and draw us into communion with him and bring us to further understand the love that he has for us. And so there's a reason that he titled his very long book of sermons, The Assurance of Salvation. It's sort of an indirect path to get there. And so I want us to think about assurance a little bit this morning because it's a very practical and very important issue for you and I today. I mean, imagine that you go into this next week and you are, you are confident as you wake up every morning in the love of God. You wake up and the first place your mind goes is to the fact that you are God's child, that Jesus Christ prayed for you and prayed that God would keep you and preserve you and that you would know God and be brought to eternal life with him one day. Imagine the difference that would make in your life this week if you got up and were assured of that and were confident of that as you go into every day. And you're confident of it because of what Jesus has done, not based on your own ability or your own strength or your own power, but because of him and because of the the values and the work that he lays out here in John 17. Now, on the other side of that, imagine if you walk into each day this week unsure of his love for you and you go into the day thinking that you have to do something to earn his love, that you have to read your Bible five chapters, not just three or else he's going to be grumpy with you. That you have to spend a certain amount of time in prayer today. It's not a delight to go to him in prayer, but it's a burden that is placed on you that you feel you have to do in order to earn his favor. And you have to keep his love based on your own goodness and not on what he has accomplished and on what he has done. I mean, there's quite a difference in the way you would approach each and every day between those two perspectives. Now, here's a quick definition of assurance to push us a little further down this path. Assurance of salvation is a God-given awareness that he has accepted the death of Christ on your behalf and forgiven you of your sins. And you get this God-given awareness when you look at the work of Christ, when you turn out from yourself and you gaze at him and see him and he is magnified in your eyes. And you begin to understand what's in his heart and what he loves and what he is desiring to do for us and ultimately for the glory of the Father. And that's exactly what we get in this prayer. So this morning, we started this last week in John 17, and I want to linger over this prayer, not for 47 more weeks, but I want to linger over this prayer this morning, and I want to take you to the well of this prayer and invite you to drink deeply of the refreshing water that is here. Because this morning we get another opportunity to see into our Savior's heart and to understand what he values and what he loves. And we get the opportunity to grow in our God-given awareness that he's accepted the death of Christ on our behalf and forgiven us of our sins. And that can play a greater and greater role in your life after interacting with this prayer this morning. So last week we began the study of John 17 and we started looking at four values of Jesus, right? We're looking into his heart. So four values of Jesus revealed in his prayer to the Father. He's opening his value system up to us and we're seeing what's important to him in this prayer. And when you see what's important to him, it changes you and changes your heart. 
The first one of these values is Jesus values the glory of God through the gift of eternal life. Let me remind you of this quickly in verses 1 and 2. Look back there, John 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, the hour of his death. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the hour of his death has come. He's going to die. And his biggest desire, his biggest goal for this is that both father and son would be glorified through the gift of eternal life to those whom the father has given him. And what is eternal life? Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He comes to earth to die, to reveal the Father, and ultimately to bring glory to God through his death and through the work that he has accomplished. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So that's his first value. Second is the preservation of his disciples through the word of God. So in verse 6, he transitions from praying for the glory of God to be accomplished through his death and the gift of salvation. Now he turns his attention to his disciples who are there with him, in the room with him, and he begins to pray for them. And he sets the foundation of all the work that he's done for them and in them in verses 6 through 10. And then you get to verse 11, and he starts to pray about his departure. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And so things are going to change for his disciples. And look what he prays, the rest of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. His prayer is for these disciples to be kept and preserved and guarded in their faith. And how is he going to accomplish that? Look down at verse 17. Sanctify or set set them apart in in the truth. Your word is truth. He sets us apart. He preserves us. He keeps us. He sustains us through his word. And so this week, think of this book, the Bible that that we have been given by God's grace, that we have access to. Think of this as a gift given to us and not a burden that is placed on you, that is required of you. Begin to shift your thinking to think of this as an opportunity and as a gift that has been given to sustain you and preserve you and keep you as you continue through this life. Let's get the third value here that Jesus prays and that he reveals. The third value of his heart is the unity of his people through their communion with God. This is in verses 20 through 23. So notice how he starts this section of the prayer in verse 20. I do not ask for these only. So you can make the case here that everything that we've read so far in this prayer is specifically prayed for the disciples who are in the room with them. I mean, they're the guys that are going to go out 
and spread his, his word and talk about him after his death. And so he's praying for God to keep them. There are implications, there are applications for you and I from verses 6 through 19, as we talked about last week. But primarily, I think he's praying for the disciples in the room with him. But now, in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but look what he says next, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, It's at this point that this prayer of Jesus makes a turn from the present to the future. And he's now looking ahead and he's praying for what will come to pass in the future. This is the part of this prayer that is beyond a shadow of a doubt prayed for us. I mean, we are those who are described here, right? We are those who have believed in Jesus through the word of the apostles. Look back at verse 18. What does Jesus say about his disciples who are in the room with him? As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is exactly what happened. After Jesus dies, he rises again. He ascends to the Father. And as he's ascending to the Father, he gives his disciples instructions. And he tells them to go into all the world and make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach everything that he has commanded. After Jesus ascends to the Father with those instructions, they go and they wait. The disciples wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to them. And immediately in the early chapters of the book of Acts, after receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, what do the disciples do? They start proclaiming the truth about Jesus. They start preaching that he is the Messiah from the Old Testament. He's the son of David, that he conquered death and won a great victory, and that the forgiveness of sins is offered through him. We call that message the gospel message. And so they begin preaching this, and people respond to that message. And throughout the book of Acts, as People respond to that message. The gospel, the message, moves through people city to city. And at the end of the book of Acts, where is the gospel located? It's all the way in Rome. It's gone from Jerusalem throughout the Roman Empire and all the way to the city of Rome, and it will go beyond that. People believe the message, they're baptized, they come into the church, and then they make more disciples. And as the gospel spreads, some of the apostles take the time to write down what they learned from Jesus. The Holy Spirit inspires them and they write down letters, like the Apostle Paul, and they write scripture. And those same apostles continue to speak to you and to me today through the Bible. We have the word that they have spoken. You all this morning are hearing that same word 2,000 plus years later. People have been hearing this message. They've been responding to Jesus for all of these centuries and all of these years. And as they hear it, they take the opportunity to pass that message on to others. And so we've come to this point in time. And now... We sit here and we have received the message and now the message is our responsibility. 
We're a link in this chain of God's working. It has come for 2,000 years, and now it is our time, and we are here. And we have the responsibility to faithfully understand the gospel and then to proclaim it and pass it on to others. One of my favorite series of books is The Lord of the Rings. And in the first book in that series, In the Fellowship of the Ring, it's by J.R.R. Tolkien, one of the main characters, if you've never read it, is a main character named Frodo. And Frodo has been given a very great burden that he has to carry. There's this ring of power that has to be destroyed, and Frodo is the only one that can carry this ring to the only place where it can be destroyed. And it is a great burden for him. And he's overcome by what is in front of him. And here's what he says. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish it need not have happened in my time. And the wizard Gandalf responds to him with these words. And so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. There's a lot of wisdom in those words. All you and I have to do is we have to assess the time that we have been given, the opportunity in front of us, and then we have to decide what we're going to do with that. Are we going to spend it on ourselves? Or are we going to understand that we're a part of this chain that began here of gospel proclamation, and are we going to take the opportunity to be the link in that chain that ensures that the next generation is going to have the clear gospel given to them. You and I are on God's stage for a moment. We enter onto his stage of his plans and of what he's doing in the world, and he intends for us to play our part and to ensure that the gospel goes to the next generation, to our children, to the children that we teach here in church, to those we work with, to our neighbors, to family members. So that's the question. As we read this this morning, what will we do with the time that's given to us and with the gospel message that we have? So Jesus is praying for us here in verse 20. We know that, but what does he specifically pray? Look at verse 21. He prays for those who will believe in me through their word, verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prays here very clearly that we, those who have believed, those who are followers of Christ, would have unity together. And that unity is based on the union and the unity between the Father and the Son. So, how are Jesus and the Father one? How are they unified? Well, in a lot of ways. They have a shared identity. They have shared life. They have shared purpose, shared love. Now, their unity goes far beyond our unity with one another, right? The Father and the Son share the same essence. They are both divine, two persons, one essence, and we don't share the same essence with other believers. And yet, through the work of Christ, we have been placed in a body objectively in union with one another. We are identified with one another because we're connected to Christ. We have the same purpose. 
We ought to have the same love, the same goals, the same mission. We are part of the same branch that needs to be connected to the vine, as we saw in John chapter 15. But this unity is not just someone saying very loudly, why can't we all just get along? That's not how unity works. Unity works when you are unified around something, when you're turned away from yourself and focused on something specific, and all of you are focused there together. And in our case here, we're focused on the gospel message that proclaims the love of the Father and the Son, and we're focused on our union with the Father and the Son through the work of Christ. That is what binds us together. That's what we have in common this morning. That is why we're here. And it's when we recognize that we have that objective unity, right? We are family. We are part of the church. We have been placed in union with one another through Christ. It's when we recognize that, that then we can begin to work that out in our daily lives. And we can begin to live as if that were true. And we can begin to reflect that unity of purpose and of love and of mission in how we deal with one another. And Jesus explains here that this union with the Father and the Son ultimately draws us into a relationship further with the Father and the Son. Look at verse 22. Into communion with God. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I mean, this is a wild thing for Jesus to say, that he's going to give us the glory of God that you and I are actually going to be recipients of the glory of God? What in the world is he talking about here? How do we receive the glory of God? Well, Romans 8 tells us that the end goal of salvation is that you and I would be glorified. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the final goal of our salvation, that we would be glorified. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So there's a process where we, we grow in Christ's likeness and begin to reflect him. And that's described as changing from one degree of glory to another. And the culmination of that in our glorification is put like this in 2 Corinthians. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So our earthly struggles are tough, but they can't even be compared with the eternal weight of glory that is coming for us, that awaits us. And what is that glory? That glory is where we are freed from sin, made like Christ, and we enter fully into communion with Him. We enter into the relationship and the love fully that the Father has for the Son and vice versa through the Spirit. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the goal, the glory that we receive is the relationship, the communion, ultimately, between the Father and the Son. We enter into that, and you've, you've seen twice in these verses that one of the results of our unity with one another through communion with God is that the world sees that. Look back in verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then look at our verse here in 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The unity of believers around the gospel message and around the love for each other that comes from the love of God is powerful. It should be powerful in the eyes of the world. Why? Why does that unity prove so compelling to the world? Well, it's a unity built on love. You can see that in verse 23. So that the world may know, what do they know? That the Father sent the Son and loved them. The unity of believers for one another actually puts the love of God on display for a watching world. When believers are walking in unity of identity and of purpose, it points people back to the love of God. Because there's questions like, okay, this is an odd group that has come together here in this church. They're so different in so many ways, but but how are these people who are so different walking together in love for one another and serving one another, how are they walking with a common purpose and a common goal? How are they sacrificially serving and giving of themselves for others? How is there such support and help and community in this group of people? It's because, ultimately, of the love of the Father for us through the Son. It's because we begin to take that vertical love that comes from the Father, and we begin to bend that out in love for one another, and that is a noticeable thing when that happened, because people aren't normally like that. Sin does not encourage us that way. And so love, true love, is a powerful apologetic to the world. And let's not forget here that having the world hear the message of God's love for us is one of the reasons that we're here. It's what the disciples were doing, right? They they were proclaiming the word of God, the love of God in Christ, and people were believing in that. And that's one of the reasons that we exist as a church body. And so it's for all of that that Jesus prays here that all future believers, including you and including me, would grow together in unity as we represent God, as we experience communion with Him and fellowship with Him. And ultimately, He hopes that that love and that unity will put God's love on display for a lost and dying world. Let's see the last value here. The unity of his people through communion with God. And then lastly, the presence. Here's what Jesus wants, and here's what he values. The presence of his loved ones through his love for them. This is in verses 24 to 26. So if you will remember, this passage, this prayer, comes at the end of a meal that Jesus has with his disciples. The Last Supper. Chapters 13 all the way through this chapter, chapter 17. And he's said a lot of things in these chapters, hasn't he? 
and he's told them some really great things, and he's also told them some very difficult things for them to hear. He's told them that the world is going to hate them. Kind of an uncomfortable thing to hear. Not fun. Looking forward to that happening in the future. He's told them that they're going to be persecuted. He's told them that he's going away to die. He said that he would no longer be with them. But now he brings this prayer to a close in these last few verses. And everything sort of comes to a head here because it's in these last few verses that Jesus makes his ultimate request to the Father for his disciples and for us as well. This is a prayer of Jesus for you. This is what he wants for you more than anything else. He ends his prayer this way on purpose and for a reason. He wants his disciples to understand what the ultimate goal and the end game is for them as they persevere and as he keeps them. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus has promised this before, right? If you think back to John chapter 14, this is a very common passage for us to read at funerals. Listen to the first couple of verses of John 14. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The final destination of every believer is eternity with Jesus in his presence. But notice here, back in John 17, that Jesus wants something beyond their presence with him. Obviously, that's significant. But he's actually deeply and passionately interested in the disciples experiencing something beyond his presence with him. Look at verse 24 again. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And then here's, here's the goal. Here's what he wants. To see my glory. To see my glory. That's the goal. And it's the glory that God has given to him that he experienced with the Father before the foundation of the world. Now, in one sense, we've been studying the Gospel of John and the glory of God, the glory of Christ is seen in his incarnation, right? John chapter 1 talks about this. We beheld his glory. John, 1 John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. The Apostle John says this, that which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so there is a sense in which the disciples and 
By extension, you and I see the glory of Christ in the incarnation. You have seen the glory of Christ. And yet, and yet, there's something more out there. And this is what Jesus prays for here. There's something beyond seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation, which is amazing in and of itself. But there's something else awaiting you and everything else in your life and all of this work of Christ and salvation and forgiveness of sins and all of it is pointing toward this goal. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, existed before creation, before the incarnation, in such beautiful and awe-inspiring glory that you and I can scarcely imagine it. That's what he's talking about here. And he says multiple times in this prayer that he's going to return to that glory. He's going to go back to it. And here he prays that his disciples will be present with him and that they will have the opportunity to see that glory. There's a name for this in Christian theology. Maybe you've never heard this before, but this is called the beatific vision. It's the consummation. This is the end goal of all of the work of God before believers. This is what he's bringing us to. And if you've never thought about this before, this is an unbelievable end that we are headed for. One author described it like this. The beatific vision is the sight of God revealed to God's people in eternity. It is the final end for which human persons were created. This is what you and I were made for. Scripture hints toward a future vision of God in glory, and therefore it is called beatific because it is a sight that brings happiness and perfection. The Bible is not silent on this at all. You've heard passages talking about this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 talks about this, hints at it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Remember this word blessed, happy, flourishing, wholeness. That's what this is talking about. Seeing God is the goal. Revelation 22, the end of the game. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So the question is, what is this talking about? Will we actually see God with our eyes, or is this a metaphor, is a sight a metaphor for ultimate clarity. I don't know for sure, but we'll certainly see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we see the eternal God with our eyes, our human mortal eyes, even in our glorified bodies? I don't know, but here's what I do know. That there will come a moment in the future where God's character which is his glory, will be so crystallized and so clear for us, 
We won't know him completely and totally, every aspect of him, because he's infinite, but we will know him so well and so clearly that the Bible says we will know him as he truly is. That we will understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, describes our present experience like this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's a different sort of understanding and knowledge that comes at this moment. Things get crystal clear. So here's what's going to happen, as as best I can make out from Scripture. We will enter God's presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be free from sin. We will be glorified. And we will be given the gift of absolutely clear knowledge of God. What does that mean? We will understand and we will see Him as He is. And this will radically change us. Why the transformation? Because we will move from being unsure of His love at times to being completely confident all the time. There is no doubt about His love for me. And I'll see His love clearly, finally. And there'll be no hesitancy in my response to His love. I will be fully assured and fully confident of His love. And that sort of confidence and assurance will change and transform me. I'll know what holiness is. I'll know what justice is, truly. Now I see dimly, but then I'll understand His justice. I'll know why He does what He does. I'll see His righteousness. I'll understand mercy, and I'll get grace to a much greater degree. Listen, we know we've been given grace now, but then, oh man, unbelievable amounts of grace. And we're going to see how all of it fits together. We're going to see that His justice and His mercy actually aren't opposite sides, but they go hand in hand because we will see Him as He is. And when we see Him as He is and we see how all of it fits together and we understand His mercy and grace to that level, the sight will be so beautiful. The understanding will be so transforming and magnificent that we will be overcome with joy, happiness, delight, that we have been able to have that experience. How can this be? How can it be possible that one such as this has chosen to love me? The author described it, same author like this. The vision of God is not an abstract gazing upon disinterested deity, but is a vision given over by God within love. This is seeing God as he is for me. It's understanding his love, the love that he has for me. This is what you were created for. This is the end goal. It's not just to live in heaven for eternity. It's to live in his presence and see him as he is. This is the goal of salvation, the knowledge of God, right? John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's the goal. And This is what God has prepared for us, this vision And it's what Jesus prays for here. This is what he wants for his disciples in his love. So how do we get there? Look at verses 25 and 26. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and here's how we get there. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is continuing the work through his word and through his spirit of manifesting the love of God for us. Making it clear. Through this sermon today, through your interaction with the text this week, God is saying to you over and over again, I love you. I've demonstrated it through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you in my presence for eternity to see me as I am. This is where we live right now. Jesus continuing this work through his word and his spirit. And this is what preserves us and keeps us. And brings us to this final vision of God that we hope in. So, all of that to say, let's go back to the beginning. Let this prayer of Christ for you bring assurance for this week. Confidence, awareness of God's love for you. And that awareness will keep you and preserve you. He prayed for you and his spirit continues to pray for you and make intercession for you today. His desire for you is that you would be kept in God's love until you arrive in his presence and experience the glorious and beautiful vision of him that will fill you with eternal delight. That's what he wants. That's what he values. And that is a God worth loving and trusting. Let's pray. Father, these are deep things. These are heavy things. But, oh, Lord, they're joyful things. It's, it's sometimes, Father, it's just hard to even get our, our minds there. And it certainly is hard to get our emotions there. But I pray that you would work through your spirit and your word to bring us to the point where we truly believe this and we find great joy and delight in our future with you. And may that transform us today, as 1 John says, that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Change us through the confidence that we have because you have prayed for us and you will bring us to this final vision that will be delightful and full of joy and will transform us. We're so thankful for it. We're thankful for your love. In Christ's name we pray.